Now, this morning, we want to turn in God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11, and there should be an outline in your bulletin. Uh, printed messages are at both exits, and you can get one either now or later. And if you're a tech person, you can get them on your iPhone or uh, iPad or whatever, um, and uh, track with them that way. And then the last 24 years' worth are on the website as well. Um, Paul writes, he's explaining at the end of verse 8, putting on the hel- a hel- as a helmet the hope of salvation For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. We live in a world where bad news and uh, serious problems from around the world daily just flood us. Have you ever thought about that, that if you lived just 100, 150 years ago, you wouldn't know that there was a 7.8 earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand this morning? I got that on my iPhone this morning. Uh, you, you wouldn't know that a suicide bomber blew up four Americans and a bunch of others at the Bagram Air, Air Base in Afghanistan yesterday. Uh, problems like that can just flood into our lives if you at all are in tune with the news. And it's easy to become discouraged or depressed when that kind of thing hits Uh, It often seems, as you hear the news, that the wicked are prospering, the godly are are suffering, and many times you may feel like crying out with David in Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And probably uh, Abraham felt that as God's promise of a son dragged on and on. And on, and he considered that he and Sarah were past the stage of having children. You know, maybe even the thought of Christ's final return and judgment fills you with a twinge of anxiety rather than comfort and encouragement. I mean, how can you be sure that the day of the Lord is going to be good for you and not an awful day of judgment? Well, as I mentioned, in verse 8, Paul says that as believers were to put on as a helmet the hope of salvation, and that refers to the the future aspect of our salvation. Salvation has three tenses. You were saved the moment you trusted Christ. You are being saved right now as you walk with Christ, but we will be saved when he comes again again. And the whole thing comes to culmination. Um, Paul has, has just described the time when Jesus comes again, when we will be gathered to him as the day of the Lord. And he said it's going to come on those in spiritual darkness, suddenly, 
unexpectedly and inescapably, but he said it's not going to surprise those of us who are children of light and children of the day, but rather we should be alert and sober as we live every day in view and anticipation of that great day. But even so, there are believers who may feel a little anxious and nervous about that day. They may think, well, what if my life doesn't quite measure up? Or or what if my faith in Christ is a bit shaky? Or my love for God and my love for my neighbor is, um, well, a little lukewarm or cold. What then on that day? And so if our salvation is based on our performance, we could be anxious about that future day. And so Paul here goes on to remind us of the basis of our salvation and to exhort us to encourage and build up one another with uh, the truth that he presents here. He's saying that since our salvation is based on God's purpose and God's provision, and God's promise, we should encourage and build up one another with this wonderful truth. So, three facts about our salvation here. First of all, Paul says it's based on God's purpose. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek verb that is translated destined, according to the Greek-English lexicon by Bauer Art Gingrich, means to destine or appoint someone uh, to or for something. And another scholar says, it is used regularly for God's sovereign determination of events. Uh, Jesus uses it when he's in the upper room with the disciples talking about them in John 15:16 he says you did not choose me but i chose you and then here's the word and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name he may give to you The Apostle Paul uses the same word with reference to his appointment as an apostle in um, 1 Timothy 2.7. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that God appointed Christ as the heir of all things. And Peter uses the verb in 1 Peter 2.8 with reference to those who stumble over Christ because they are disobedient to the word, and Peter adds, uh, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, all of those uses, and there are many others we could have gone to, refer, as um, Professor Beale says, to God's sovereign determination of someone for his own particular purposes. In theology, what we're talking about here is called the doctrine of predestination. And I realize it causes a lot of Christians uh, to stumble or causes them grief. I think often because they don't understand it rightly. Predestination does not mean that God has pre-programmed everyone as robots and that they have no choice 
They just are doing what they're pre-programmed to do. That's the common misconception of it. The Bible very clearly teaches we all make choices. And we all are responsible for our choices. God could not hold us responsible if we were just pre-programmed. No one can get to the judgment and blame God or blame their parents or blame their circumstances for the bad, sinful choices that he's made. Now, granted, we're all affected by our parents. We're all affected by our surroundings, our circumstances. The generation we grow up in has great impact on all of us. There are many, many factors that we have no control over. I couldn't control that I was born in America as a white male when I was born to parents who just became Christians. All that was determined for me. Uh, I couldn't, you know, make a checklist and say, here's what I'd like, Lord, before I was born. Uh, But yet, I'm responsible for the choices I make, whether I follow the Lord or follow sin. Um, What predestination means in a nutshell is this. God has a plan or a purpose for the ages. And secondly, God is capable of, of fulfilling his plan. And that's only reasonable, it seems to me. Say you were going to build a house. You, you wouldn't scrounge around for a few two-bys and throw them together and start nailing. You would, first of all, draw up a plan. And then you would determine, you know, am I capable of carrying out this plan? Do I have enough money? Uh, if I'm not capable of doing the work, can I hire capable workers? You, you would work the plan out. Well, it's inconceivable that the God who spoke this entire universe into existence did it without a plan and, and that he's not able to carry out that plan. And that essentially is uh, predestination. And the Bible ref- affirms this over and over and over again. Uh, at the end of his ordeal, Job and you remember all that he went through. He answers the Lord in Job 42.2, and he says, I know that you can do all things. There's God's ability. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's his purpose. Job says, I know that everything that happened to me was according to your purpose, and you're able to carry it out. So he is submitting to the sovereign plan of God and God's ability Carry it out. Psalm 33.11 affirms the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Psalm 103 verse 19 proclaims the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 and verse 3, the psalmist is replying to the nations that insolently ask, where now is their God? And here's the psalmist's answer. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And only God can do whatever he pleases rightly because he's holy. If I do whatever I please, I'm usually sinning. Um, Isaiah chapter 14 verse 24 asserts, and this is regarding the demise of the most powerful 
nation that would be on earth, Babylon, seemed impregnable with their defenses. And here's what it says. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended it, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. He's referring to Babylon's uh, falling. Then again, in Isaiah 46.10, and this regards God's raising up Cyrus, who didn't even exist when um, Isaiah wrote this prophecy. But Cyrus was a pagan king who would decree that Israel could return to their land. And uh, God says this, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Uh, many other references I could have mentioned. Um, Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things after the counsel of his will, so on. You know, just the book of Revelation affirms that God will accomplish his purpose. In the book of Revelation, you got the whole end laid out. And God isn't just looking down through history and saying, oh, whew, good, I'm going to win. You know, sure glad it turned out that way. God is decreeing what will happen and showing us that he is sovereign overall and that he will triumph. Now, since God's glory through his plan of salvation is at the very center of why he created the universe, again, it's inconceivable that he would leave the outcome of that up to the choices of fallen sinners. You know? Um, Fallen sinners are unable to choose God unless God works in their hearts. Several scriptures here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan, whom he calls the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Unbelievers are like blind people, and they can't see the sun. Even though you tell them it's up there, they, they cannot perceive it unless God opens their eyes. Or 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Or again, in Romans 8, 7 and 8, Paul says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then he adds, For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, he's referring to unbelievers, cannot please God. They cannot do anything of their own uh, to please God. And so those verses show us that if anyone is going to be saved, it has to be because, as we sang earlier, salvation is of the Lord. God does it. Um, God predestined it to happen. God causes it to happen. And I'm not making that up. I'm just quoting verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he 
predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why we're saved right there. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Or in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's looking at the entire process of salvation Start to finish saying, it's all of God, and God gets all the glory. Now, a lot of people misunderstand uh, the term foreknowledge when it says, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Again, it doesn't mean that God knew in advance who was going to believe in him of their own free will, and he put them on his list. Uh, That would be like man, fallen sinners, making up the sovereign plan of God. God wouldn't be able to make up his plan until he peered down through history and he goes, oh, good, I'm so glad that that man Paul is going to trust me because I knew he'd make a good apostle. And uh, so since he's going to trust me, I'm going to put him on my list and make him my apostle. That is not what the Bible says about how God worked to save Paul. Um, Jeffrey Bromley uh, uh, late scholar in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, explains it this way, God's foreknowledge stands related to his will and power. What he knows, he does not merely know as information. He is no mere spectator. What he foreknows, he ordains, he wills it. So that's the idea of God foreknowing us that he willed to save us. He knew us before we were even born. Now, Paul in 1 Thessalonians has already mentioned God's choice of them uh, and that God called them to salvation. He did that in chapter 1 and verse 4, chapter 2 and verse 12, again in chapter 4 and verse 7. He's going to repeat it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, here's why, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification uh, by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you have to ask the question, well, Why does Paul emphasize that so often, over and over and over? And it's not just in Thessalonians. It's all through his writings. Uh, You know, is it just as I heard another pastor in town once say to me, he said, well, isn't that just a theological issue we talk about in seminary? And I was floored. And And I said, well, no, not exactly. I said, it really concerns the basis of our salvation. Um, What it means is this. God set his love on you and made provision by sending his son, we'll look at that in just a moment, to die for your sins. And then 
He orchestrated the circumstances of your life to bring the gospel in you into an intersection where you were confronted with that truth that you were a sinner and that Christ died for your sins and that all you had to do was trust him to receive eternal life. God worked all of that out as his plan uh, before he laid the foundation of the world. And that means that your salvation is not due to your feeble grip on God, but to God's firm hand on you. And that is a great and glorious thing to know. Um, God started it. God's going to finish it. Paul says that in Philippians 1.6. Or Jesus put it this way in John 6.37-40. to 40. He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a profound statement. The Father has given some to Christ. And Jesus says, I sure hope they'll believe in me. No, he says, all that the Father gives me, those are the elect, they will come to me. And then he adds, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will? Well, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, before we leave verse 9, let me just note that there are two and only two final destinies for all people. And Paul describes them here as either salvation or wrath. And in the context, wrath is the opposite of the eternal life of salvation. And so it refers to the eternal wrath of God on those who reject Jesus. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. As a holy God, he must judge all sin. Salvation, on the other hand, refers to all the blessings that God promises to his elect. And in John 3.36, it contrasts these two opposite destinies. John the Baptist says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I realize that the doctrine of eternal punishment is one of the more difficult doctrines for us to uh, submit to in Scripture, but I, I recently listened to a sermon by a local evangelical pastor who said he does not believe in eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. And he said either he thinks they will be annihilated, that is, cease to exist at some point, or God is going to reconcile everything and everyone to himself in Christ eventually. Um, That's a form of universalism. And he said he wasn't sure which of those he believes. Uh, Again, I am sympathetic because I know that's a hard doctrine, but I don't see how you can believe the word of God and escape the eternality of punishment. For example, 
in Matthew 25:46, Jesus concluded his discourse on the end times by saying, These, referring to the wicked, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And just a few verses earlier, up in verse 41, Jesus said that the wicked will be cast into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This pastor tried to explain that eternal doesn't always mean eternal. But I would point out and say, if eternal doesn't mean eternal in verse uh, 46, then eternal life isn't eternal either because Jesus contrasts eternal punishment and eternal life. And it would be very odd if one meant temporary and the other in the same breath meant eternal. And so as hard as that doctrine is, it seems to me we have to submit to the word of God and recognize we're either destined for wrath or we're destined for salvation. Now, maybe people are saying, well, how can I know if I'm destined for salvation? Here's how you know. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven in his shed blood on the cross? If so, the good news is you didn't come up with that on your own. It is the gift of God, as we'll see in just a moment. And God imparted that knowledge to you. He opened your eyes to see it. And that means that you are one of his elect, if you believe in Christ. So that's the first point, that God has uh, a purpose. Our salvation is based on God's purpose or his plan uh, for us, for eternal life. Then secondly, Paul goes on and says, Our salvation, then, is based on God's provision, and that's through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. See verse 9 at the end? Paul says, salvation is through our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he adds, who died for us. Now, if, as many scholars think, 1 Thessalonians is Paul's first writing, first letter, some argue Galatians is, but... If this is his first letter, that's the first time in print Paul has mentioned the death of Christ as the means of our salvation. Uh, And the fact that he just mentions it in passing and moves on shows he had taught these people in the brief months he was with them, he had taught them about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's foundational to the gospel. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, you learn that Paul emphasized that truth when he was preaching the gospel in the synagogue there. In Acts 17.3, Luke summarizes, I'm sure it's just a quick summary of what Paul said. It says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so the substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins is at the very heart of the good news, the gospel. Now, that doctrine continually comes under fire. It has ever since the time of the apostles. It has in our day. I didn't put it in the notes, but there's this um, 
emergent church guy who calls the death of Jesus cosmic child abuse. Isn't that blasphemous? Cosmic child abuse. He just doesn't get it. And I would argue he's not saved. But still, somebody may ask you sometime, or maybe you wonder about it yourself, well, why did Jesus really have to die? I mean, why couldn't God just forgive us? You know, if somebody steps on my toe, I say, I forgive you. And, you know, we let bygones be bygones. In fact, sometimes there's pretty serious sins against us and we forgive. Why can't God just forgive? Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer is because God is absolutely holy and righteous. And if God just papered over sin without the penalty being paid, he would not be a just and righteous God. And God, who is the sovereign of the universe, has declared the wages of sin is death. And that refers ultimately to eternal death. The second death in Revelation 20 is eternal separation from God. So that's the penalty. Now, in his great love and mercy, God sent his eternal son, Jesus, and he bore on the cross the penalty that we deserve as sinners. And so God can be both just and the justifier, then, of the one who has faith in Jesus, as Paul puts it in Romans uh, 3.26, I think it is. But Paul explains it this way in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took the penalty we deserve. God can say, penalty paid, they go free at Christ's expense. That's the substitutionary atonement. And that means salvation is not based on how many good works we can pile up, you know, to tip the scale. Or how many merits we can accumulate in heaven by good deeds. Rather, our salvation is based on God's gracious choice of us and the fact that he provided for our sins when Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 puts it this way. For by grace, that means undeserved favor, you don't earn it, can't do anything to get it, you have been saved through faith. And in case you're ready to congratulate yourself and say, I knew I had a part in it, it was my faith, Uh, Paul adds, and that not of yourselves, he means the whole process, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can't even boast in our faith. All we can say is God gave it. Praise God, it's all to him. Or, We all know the beloved John 3.16. I don't know if you think about it often. I hope you do. For God so loved the world. And think of the world today. Suicide bombers and adulterers and homosexuals and all manner of sin. Have you ever thought of God looking down on this world? What he sees. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever... Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. 
So salvation then, that means deliverance from God's wrath, deliverance from perishing. It's his free gift to everyone who believes in Jesus and his death for their sins. Now, still, there's another question. Well, how do we know that's true? How do we know it's not just wishful thinking? And that relates to the next point, that our salvation is based on God's promise of eternal life. It's based on God's purpose. It's based on God's provision. And then it's based on God's promise. After stating that Christ died for us, Paul adds this in verse 10, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That's our promise. Now, behind that promise is an assumption. If we're going to live forever with him, guess what? He's alive. He's alive. He is not dead. He is risen from the dead. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, our faith rests on that truth. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. So Christ risen is the promise that we have that he lives, we will live. And Jesus in the Gospels repeatedly predicted both his own death and his resurrection, but it went right by the disciples. They, they didn't get it until afterwards. But in the upper room, here's what he told the anxious and sorrowing disciples. They, they had a sense of foreboding. Something's wrong here tonight. But they didn't know what was going to happen. And Jesus gave them these comforting words in John 14, 18, and 19. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me when he's in the grave. But you will see me after the resurrection. And then he adds this. Here's the promise. Because I live, you also will live. What a wonderful promise. And Jesus kept that promise by revealing himself to the disciples after the resurrection. And the disciples were so confident that Jesus was risen and that he's coming back again as he promised that every one of them, maybe with the exception of John, went to martyrs' deaths because they knew the promise of God was true. You don't go out and lay down your life for a iffy kind of hope. They knew that God's promise was true. And our salvation is based on the promise that God gives eternal life to all who believe, as Paul put it again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, who believe that Christ died for our sins. There's the substitution. According to the Scriptures, there's the promise, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, you notice that in our text, we will live together with him is in the future tense. So Paul is talking about the culmination of our salvation when Christ comes back for us. Then we will be with the Lord, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. Now, I need to clear up uh, an interpretive problem or matter in verse 10. There are a few scholars... who argue that the phrase awake or asleep means, as Paul has just discussed in verses 1 through 8, 
whether we are primarily or whether we are spiritually alert and expecting Christ's coming or whether we're maybe spiritually asleep and a little bit insensitive to his coming, don't worry, we're going to live when he comes. Um, so, in other words, they're saying, well, since our salvation is not based on our performance but on Christ's finished work, it can't be nullified by our lack of readiness. I, I think such a meaning, though, completely undermines the exhortation he just gave to spiritual alertness then. Uh, when he said, you need to be awake. Um, in fact, F.F. F. Bruce, a uh, respected scholar, puts it a lot more strongly. He says, it is ludicrous. That's his word. It is ludicrous to suppose that Paul means whether you live like sons of light or like sons of darkness, it'll make little difference. Uh, you will be all right in the end. Rather, the Bible consistently teaches that if God has affected the new birth in us, the effects of that will play out in our lives. Just like if you have a live baby, there are certain things will follow. That if that baby is alive and growing and healthy and all of that, that. Uh, it's certainly not automatic because there are many exhortations in the Bible for us to grow, to walk with Christ and so on. But my point is, if God has changed your heart, through the new birth, then you can't live comfortably or complacently in sin. If you're comfortable in sin, known sin, and you're just going, oh, yeah, 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 well, I'm a Christian, don't worry about it, uh, you better go back to square one and say, wait a minute, Christians do fall into sin, of course, but they can't be comfortable there. They are just not happy campers when they're in sin. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 puts it this way. By this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, John is blunt, is a liar and the truth is not in him. So I think that when Paul says, whether we're awake or asleep in our text, He's going back to chapter 4 and verses 13 to 17, where Paul said, whether we're alive, awake, when Christ comes, or whether we're asleep, we've already died, and are awaiting the resurrection, when he comes, we will be raised again. And the Greek lexicon and most of the commentators take it that way. What it means is, whether you're dead or whether you're living, when Jesus comes, you'll get a new resurrection body. You'll be raised up and you will live forever with him. And that's God's promise to all who believe in Jesus. And then Paul concludes with a practical exhortation. Verse 11, we should encourage and build one another up with this wonderful truth of salvation. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. And then he adds, just as you are also doing. Um, when Paul exhorted the Thessalonians back in chapter 4 and verse 1 to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, he added there, just as you actually do walk, he commended them. And then in chapter 4 and verse 10, when he exhorted them to love one another, he acknowledged, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren. And here, when he's exhorting us to encourage and build up one another, he adds, 
just as you also are doing. Now, why does he exhort us if we're doing it? Well, the reason is there's always room to grow in these areas. You know, I trust that we are already exhorting and encouraging and building up one another with these truths, but we can do better. That's what Paul's saying. You can excel still more. Um, And uh, that's what he said back in verse 1 of chapter 4 and verse 10, excel still more. Now, to encourage one another means to continually strengthen by one's words, according to Leon Morris. And to build up implies, again, continual need for growth, like building a building that's not done yet. We've got to keep working at building up one another. There's an interesting verse, and I hope you all would memorize this verse. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul brings together the concept of encourage or of building up edification and using our words. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That means building up. According to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Um, That word unwholesome in verse 29 of Ephesians 4 means rotten. And the way I always picture it is, sometimes you just want to take a rotten tomato and fling it in somebody's face because they've said something bad to you. And you just want to smear it all over them. You know, that's the idea. Paul says, don't do that. And if you're thinking, yeah, but the other person deserves a rotten tomato, then Paul adds that line that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace is undeserved favor. They don't deserve it. They deserve the rotten tomato. Give them grace. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3.9 where he says, don't trade insult for insult. Don't, don't share evil for evil. He says, give a blessing instead. It's the same idea. Now, this process, notice, of encouraging and building one another up is not the responsibility only of the leaders of the church. Paul is addressing this to the entire church. And frankly, I and the pastoral staff and the elders here are simply incapable of encouraging and building up the whole body. We can't do it. There's too many. But we've all got a network of relationships and of contacts, one with another. And the church will be strong when every member has as their mindset, I need to encourage and build up my brother, my sister in Christ when I have contact with them, with my words. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul puts it this way. Notice the emphasis on words. And building up, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Not just one member or a few, every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, there it is again, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let me conclude with just two thoughts. 
Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, points out an interesting thing. He says the Thessalonians' need was personal and pastoral, and Paul's answer was theological. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they're hurting. They're, they're worried and anxious about their loved ones who have died, and they're grieving. And, and, you know, they're trying to get it all together. And what does Paul talk to them about? God's sovereign election? Substitutionary death of Christ? The resurrection, the second coming of Christ? Those are all doctrinal answers. And, you know, we live in a day when Christian psychologists will say, and I've heard them say this, Oh, people don't need the Bible when they're hurting. They need, you know, your comfort and so on. Huh? I just want to say, huh? We need the Bible now. Of course, we have to apply it gently and compassionately. But the point is, sound doctrine is not abstract, impractical stuff that a bunch of theologians sit around debating. Sound doctrine is the foundation for emotional healing. Come to the Word of God. It's got what we need. And then the final thought. In order to apply verse 11, that is to encourage and build up others with sound doctrine, guess what? You need to be doing that to yourself. Because we can only impart to others what we possess and what we experience. And if you're not in the Word, feeding yourself with the Word, being encouraged by the Word, being built up by the Word, your cup's going to be empty. And you won't have anything to slop over on those around you. But it's awfully hard to contain a full cup, isn't it? If your cup's full to the brim, it's going to spill. And if you're full to the brim of Jesus because you've spent time with Him and you're encouraged by these wonderful truths of salvation... uh, Guess what? You get around other Christians and it's going to spill. And they're going to be built up. And the body's going to be built up. They'll build you up. And so that's Paul's message to us is rejoice in God's purpose that he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Rejoice in God's provision. He made full provision in the death of Christ for the chief of sinners to be saved. Rejoice in God's promise. Jesus said, I am coming back and I'll receive you unto myself. Where I am, you may be also. And then spill over on others. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this wonderful portion of your word. Thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor against Christians. And yet he found mercy, that in him, the chief of sinners, your superabundant mercy would be shown. If any are here outside of Christ, I pray, Father, that they might trust in Jesus even this morning. Give up their own works. Give up their own performance. Trust in Christ alone. And Father, I thank you that Your word encourages us. Help us to encourage one another for Jesus' sake. Amen.